from the compostable studios of Univest at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. It is time for another acrimonious episode of Chemical Free Horticultural Hijinks You Bet Your Garden. Is that pile in your backyard creating compost that will feed your plants and protect them from disease? Or is it just your local co-mingled recycling center? I'm Mike McGrath, and on today's show, we'll discuss the difference between compost and compostables. Plus, and especially heaping helping of your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and radiantly redundant rationalizations. So stay right where you are, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you properly recycling your holiday trash right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden. From the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath, coming up later in the show, do you think you are making garden compost or are you just composting? We'll talk about the crucial difference after lots more of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. Mark, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mark. How you doing? I'm doing good. A little dreary here, but other than that, great. Well, where is here? Cleveland Heights, Ohio. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, please, please stay my hand from making Cleveland jokes. Um, yeah, not, not the, doesn't resemble Paris in the winter. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All right. So uh, what can we do you for? Well, I have a question uh, that I've wondered about for a while about a mystery garlic that appeared in my garden. Okay. And I grow two different types of garlic. Uh, One is a mild Italian garlic that has a good-sized bulb, and the other is this sharp purple garlic, skinned garlic, that has small bulbs. And I rested one of my beds uh, because the garlics had gotten mushy. And then um, after a year, this new garlic plant just started growing. And it had stouter leaves and it looked different. So I just let it grow. And when it was ready, I pulled it and it was a very large head and the cloves were nice, so I just kept planting it. And it has slightly purple skin on the cloves. And I have no idea where it came from. And I initially thought maybe it was a hybridization between the two types of garlic I grow. And then I asked some people, and they said that garlic really doesn't hybridize, um, and I always cut the scapes off. Okay. So I have no idea where it came from, and it just is a mystery to me because 
no one in the neighborhood seems to grow garlic gotcha. but me. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, so uh, by cutting the scapes off early in um, spring, early summer, um, you're preventing the garlic from setting seed. Now, how many years have you been doing this? Probably eight or nine. Okay. And am I correct in this new garlic um, appeared in an otherwise empty bed? Yes. Okay. Um, And you say nobody else in your neighborhood grows garlic. That I know of. Right, because I would blame evil squirrels, first of (laughs) all, for, you know, digging up their garlic and planting it in your patch. And um, and by the way, have you cured uh, the neck rot that was um, assaulting your garlic? Uh, well, after two years of just letting it sit, um, I don't seem to have a trouble with it. And since the mystery garlic seemed to not have a trouble, I tend to plant the mystery garlic in that bed. Okay. And... Uh... You have been planting the mystery garlic for how many seasons? Probably about four. Okay. And uh, obviously you like this combination variety. Um, Do you only replant the biggest cloves? Uh, Do you save anything for cooking and tasting? Um, I only plant the biggest cloves and then uh the rest of it i eat my wife makes pesto with it Mm. and i usually plant about a hundred plants a year right a hundred cloves right Uh, yeah so about 30 of of each of the three types well um there is a mystery here obviously i will tell you um that in one essence, the same thing happened to me. When I started growing garlic, uh, I had a very busy uh, season speaking around the country um, at garden shows and master gardener events and stuff. And for some reason, I, I came home at the end of the season with samples of four different garlics. And, of course, me being me, I immediately lost the tags, had no idea who had given me what. Um, But I just planted them, you know, broke them apart and planted them, tried to keep them organized. And over the years, some did much better than others. And eventually a strain developed that uh, was all similar to each other. Um, I know there's a word in there somewhere, but I'll find it out on Friday or something. Um, But they were all one variety. And I happened to be speaking at the Seed Savers Exchange in Decorah, Iowa, um, that season after I had harvested and was showing people how to, uh, farmers, how to make garlic powder and, you know, garlic vinegar to get that extra price boost and everything like that. And Seed Savers asked for some uh, samples of my garlic. And they got they planted it out and got back to me a couple of years later and said, this is your garlic. I mean, 
This is not a variety that's exactly like any other variety we know. So inside the clove, there's a lot of DNA going on. And what should happen is the clove should produce a clone of the bulb it was taken off of. But every once in a while, there occurs in gardening and horticulture something called a sport, S-P-O-R-T, where all of a sudden, you know, you've got this big row of rhododendrons that are one color or spring bulbs, and something new uh, shows up. And you did exactly what you're supposed to. You, um, you treasured it. You replanted it. And I, I would say um, that it is a true sport as, as to how it happened. I have no idea. But I would say that you have a variety that, first of all, sounds amazing. Um, but I think you have the right to name it at this point because accidentally it was created in your garden, but you have cultivated it, and that's the most important thing. Well, if I would ever name it, I would just call it mystery garlic. But you don't think that would sell in a seed catalog? Well, I, I don't know. One person had recommended that I have it sequenced to see what it was. Boy, that would be expensive. And that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. No, um, oh, uh, there's probably an organization. I mean, we garlic heads are really into our garlic. But I will ask you a question. If you're going to get 100 bulbs, ideally, uh, this coming summer, um, I will offer to trade you some of my bulbs uh, for a couple of these bulbs. And I'll grow it out in a totally different climate and see what happens. I would certainly be willing to, to send you some if you're interested. All right. Well, we will keep in touch, man, and the science will continue onward. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, getting a little more information about it. Well, thank you, Mark. It's, uh, it's a great topic. Thank you for calling. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind all of you that I will soon return to the friendly confines of Hartford to appear at the Connecticut Flower and Garden Show at the Hartford Convention Center. I'll answer all your garden questions on Friday afternoon, February 23rd, and then address two specific topics on Saturday the 24th. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back to take more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA.
Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we're going to discuss composting in a way that may surprise you. But right now, we had a phone call from the editor of Electronic Design Magazine, a gentleman named Bill Wong, who wanted to talk to me about rechargeable versus corded electric devices in the garden. And we liked it so much. Um, well, I think we're turning it from a phone call into an interview. So here we go. Bill Wong, Electronic Design Magazine. Bill, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Nice to be on. It's nice to have you on, Bill. Um, how you doing? Fine. Just finishing up, uh, turning a lot of leaves. Oh, okay. Uh, doing what to leaves? Well, shredding them. And in fact, I was sort of going to talk to you. And I want to give you a little bit of background. I'm actually the editor of Electronic Design Magazine. And I've been following your show for a very long time. And I'm very glad that you're talking to people about shredding their leaves using uh, electrical uh, devices as opposed to gas-powered ones. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, your magazine, uh, are you in the greater Philadelphia area? No, actually, uh, I'm in the Philadelphia area, but our, our main base is in uh, Tennessee. And uh, we target, essentially, engineers that are designing electronics and things of that nature. Oh, please get them to write better directions. Please. <laughs> please. And, and yeah, unfortunately, these days, AI is probably going to wind up doing that, which uh, is going to make progressively worse. I was just going to say, when you think it can't get any worse, uh, and make the type bigger. Who is supposed to read this stuff? Anyway, so, yes, I remember your email. I was very anxious to get you on the show because you were essentially challenging me about a position I've held for the last, I don't know, five, ten years. Um, but I'm not sure that I'm right anymore or that there's simply one way to go. But I have a feeling you and I can both agree that the phasing out of the gasoline and oil two-stroke engines for gardening will be a blessing. Definitely. And I, for one, have actually been using uh, the electrical versions of, you know, the shredders and leaf blowers and things like that. But uh, I've been using essentially the wired version, which I think you've sort of gone away from. And, you know, extension cords are a challenge, but the, uh, there are two advantages to that. Number one is obviously you don't need batteries. And number two, the, uh, these types tend to be less expensive and actually lighter, even though you do have to drag the cord around. Well, no, you're right about the, the lightness factor. Um, every time I get a machine ready for use, I keep thinking, boy, I hope in the future they make these rechargeable batteries lighter because 
I have at least one device that it doubles the weight of the machine itself. Um, so corded versus rechargeable. Like yeah, the- that's pretty much it. Sort of mentioning that you know both are out there, and obviously for those people that have a larger area that doesn't necessarily have an outlet readily available, that's going to be a challenge. But you know, you have a hundred foot cord, you can get uh, quite an area covered with that. Yeah, Bill, I got six hundred foot cords with so much black tape wrapped around them, you can't see the orange cord anymore. Um, I was terrible at using a corded mulching mower. I mean, it I didn't matter what I did. I could spray paint it fluorescent orange. I would still run over it. And, yeah. and you know, there are, especially at leaf shredding time, there are just places where it's too darned inconvenient to keep being close to an outside outlet. But your email uh, made me start thinking about this in a different way because, and I'm, I'm going to misquote you probably here, but I believe your main concern is, okay, this is convenient, it's electrical versus gas, uh, but what are we going to do with all these old dead batteries? Exactly. And it's very important that those batteries be recycled. And most of those are ones that are, you know you buy at Home Depot or Lowe's or things like that. They do recycle them. So yes. It's very important to recycle that as well as the electronics should you actually wear out one of these things. Oh, yeah. Um, no, I do, um, yeah, Home Depot and Staples, depending on what it is. I'm very happy I can take, um, you know, at uh, at Home Depot I can take my old uh, fluorescent light bulbs as they finally die off. That, that, that was a poor median between incandescent <laughs> bulbs and LEDs. Um, and I can take my electronics to, um, uh, to Staples, the batteries to Home Depot. Um, it, it makes me happy, you know, cause I'm not hugely a fan of big box stores because I want people to go to local garden centers instead but this is a huge service they provide now i want to throw something at you uh that i read almost simultaneously with uh your email and that was the and you probably know more about this than i do but there's a company somewhere here in the united states that's taking the truly big batteries the giant ones for um, hybrids and all electric cars. And they found that they can, I, I don't know exactly what the technique is, but they can break them down into smaller components. And I think I read, and I'm going to get this wrong for sure. I think I read that every like Prius or whatever kind of battery is actually a series of units. And they mentioned, I believe, the number 24. Um, But that you can take four of those units, uh, wire them together, and power uh, a significant amount of, let's say, machinery, for lack of a better word. 
So mm-hmm. with cars, I can envision a future where, you know, when a car gets totaled or I've, I've, I've had electric cars almost all, well, not all my life, but since the first Prius came out, and I never had a battery go bad on me. I, I don't believe that they ever go bad. But <laughs> Well, they actually do. And what's interesting is that uh, if you got all the way down, the batteries are not much bigger than, you know, a D-cell. But there are lots of them. Exactly. And what happens is with a car, you know, it's true of a lot of other things like cell phones and things like that. But uh, at a certain point, the batteries don't necessarily retain as much charge as they do when they're brand new now for a car that makes a difference because you have to drive it uh you know and you want to go as far as possible but in a fixed environment you're not necessarily concerned about how big those things are so they have a potentially a much longer life and you can then essentially take them and put together as many as you want and they could be used as backup batteries for a house or any one of a number of things because the types of electronics, the inverters that are involved, are now effectively standard. You know, the same kind of technology that's being used for photovoltaic to put uh, the current back out onto the grid as well as into batteries. So all of that technology has been advancing and becoming more efficient, and it is possible to recycle batteries and get them down to their you know, uh, chemical components, but that's much more expensive. If, and if you can keep a battery as a battery and have useful use out of it, that's a much better payoff than actually doing the recycling. So let's say you have either a hybrid or an electric car and something happens to it or you get bored with it. Um, there is now technology that exists to take those car batteries, and the more I think about it now, uh, to make them into rechargeable batteries for outdoor power tools. That is much more of a challenge because you have to consider what the form factors are. And, in fact, that's one of the challenges of recycling the car batteries into other applications like this is that you effectively want them interchangeable. And, unfortunately, it's not like you know, we have you know, 9-volt batteries and A-cells and uh, AA's and D-cells and things like that where they're all the same size. These all tend to be different. It's the same type of thing with the rechargeable batteries for electronic devices. Uh, you know, the one that you're using for your shredder is different than the one you're using in your lawnmower. But uh, I also is- have to I also have to mention here uh, that in the big home stores, I have noticed more and more companies uh, making outdoor devices that use the same battery. That is correct, and that's something that's been uh done before on some of the commercial tools that were out there but now it's becoming much more common and it's really something that we need to do because this way those batteries recycling them become much more straightforward yes exactly um kind of like when every phone every cell phone had a different charging port and you could have eight of those things in your special box, and you'd never find the one the phone needs. So standardization is incredibly important as we move into this highly technological future. 
That's correct. And uh, the, the port that you were mentioning for the cell phones is called USB Type-C, and that's essentially been mandated in Europe and essentially has become standard within the industry. I fooled them all. Uh, I saw a device on sale at an electronics store and bought it, and it's, uh, it's an octopus. There's a standard USB port um, on one end that you plug into your computer, probably even your toaster now, um, and then it had five different adapters coming out. So you had to have the right one. <laughs> Hopefully. There are actually more connectors than that in the past, but luckily most of them have gone away. So let me, let me kind of sum this up. Um, obviously, we're all for electric um, mm -hmm. and getting rid of these terrible two-stroke engines. Um, if you can use a corded machine, and there are a lot of situations I can think of where that's, um, that's going to be easy, and uh, you should go with corded. But mm -hmm. for things that take you all over your property, here and there, you know, rechargeable is totally acceptable. It makes the job possible, but you've got to take the um, disposal, so to speak, or the recycling of that battery very seriously. Yes, yes. And regarding some things that only work with wires, uh, I'd like to put my two cents in for the vertical shredders. You've mentioned them before. Uh, I unfortunately don't have any significant trees anymore because we had to cut them all down. But I get lots of leaves from my neighbors. Right. And I usually take about, oh, two cubic yards worth of shredded leaves, which compost down to about one cubic yard when they're all done. But that takes care of my raised beds for the year. Yeah. No, um, it, it'll either be in this show or uh, in a previous show, because we don't know how, how we put these things together. Uh, but that's a big topic at the beginning of the year for me right now. Um, we're going to go into the real specifics of shredding your leaves and making real compost. I think it's a question of the week you're going to be interested in. Oh, definitely. I'm looking forward to it. All right, Bill. Well, thank you for bringing up an important point. Uh, uh, Bill, are you the editor of Electronic Design Magazine? That's correct. I'm actually the senior contact director for that and microwaves and RF. So all those wireless devices are covered by microwaves and RF. All right. All right. Well, uh, thanks for thinking. Um, thanks for bringing this to our attention. And it reminds me that no matter how much you know, you never know it all. <laughs> well, we'll keep on listening because I always learn stuff from you. All right. Well, you learned me something, so we're even. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind all of yous that I will return to the Connecticut Flower and Garden Show at the Hartford Convention Center in February. I'll do an enlightening Q&A on Friday afternoon, the 23rd, and then two shows, one on how to grow titanic tomatoes 
and another on the essential elements of composting and raised bed building, both on Saturday the 24th. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back with a tale of two different composts and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. This is 91.3 FM, WLVR Bethlehem, WLVR.org. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, and, and my name is Mike McGrath. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in this stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll blow your mind with a tale of two types of compost. But first, another of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. 888-492-9444. Jacob, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm just ducky. Thanks for asking. How is Jacob doing? Uh, I'm, I'm doing okay. Uh, I'm, I'm over in uh, Bethlehem, not just across the river from you guys. Okay. Uh, I'm calling because I've been having some squirrel problems. That I, and I, I know that this one will definitely strike, uh, strike close to home for you because they're coming after my garlic. Oh, Evil squirrels, I, by the way, Jacob. Let's call them by their proper scientific name. Of course. How could I forget? Evil, evil squirrels. Um, yeah, so basically, I uh, this past summer, I I moved into a, uh, a second-story apartment, and I wanted to try my hand at growing some herbs and whatnot, and I had a lot of success with that over the summer. I just had those a couple of those... Uh, uh, planters you can like balance on uh, balcony railings. Oh, I so like that those. Was full yeah, with yeah, the, with yeah. the cutout in the middle. Yep, they ended up not balancing super well, so <laughs> I was always afraid that they were going to fall. But uh, they do get a decent amount of sun, even though the whole uh, balcony does have a, a pretty big tree covering it. They, mm-hmm. Everything grew fine, and nothing really died. Uh, and then after, towards the end of the, the, the summer season, I decided uh, to try my hand at growing garlic after all the herbs, uh, after all the, the herbs died and I had harvested everything because I heard garlic was super easy. And I saw, the, of course, your, uh, your step-by-step guide on how to uh, harvest and pick which bulbs and all that to, to plant for next season. So uh I put some new soil in the planters. I got a bunch of garlic from my farmer's market, picked the best bulbs that I could, and I planted probably, uh, I'd say probably 25 all, all said and done, a couple inches apart across four of these planters. And, um, you, and you planted the cloves? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, I harvested the biggest bulbs, planted the cloves, uh, 
so that way the sprout is obviously facing up. Um, mm-hmm. And then I started to notice uh, after like a week or two of uh, I'd, I'd come home from work and I would notice the soil looked disturbed and I, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I, that's probably some critters trying to pick at it or whatever. And then I, I caught a couple squirrels in the act uh, carrying some of the bulbs away from uh from those planters. So I looked up online, what are some cheap and effective ways to deter squirrels? And every, uh, every place I looked said, Oh, just, just spray, uh, spray garlic powder or or get some (laughs) garlic and water. That'll keep them away. (laughs) So I thought, well, clearly they're not going to be deterred if I, if I, uh, if I'm just sweetening the deal for them with more garlic (laughs) on top of what they're already stealing. Um, so, but then they said the next best thing was to just put a bunch of fresh cracked uh, black pepper all over the soil, and that seems to have been working. But I have to keep on reapplying it every time it rains because it gets washed away. I was just wondering if you had any uh, better ideas for uh, dealing with this this menace. Well, you appear to be plagued by squirrels of Italian origin, obviously. <laughs> and they're using it to season uh, their other food, like your spring bulbs up in the trees. I have had problems. Squirrels love to dig in freshly worked soil. So when I put in my garlic cloves, we almost always notice some squirrel holes in the bed. They have not yet carried anything away. Yours may be more advanced, so don't let them talk to my squirrels. I don't need any help. (laughs) I think Um, we're far enough away that they wouldn't cross paths, but you never know. You may find that they're getting rid of, and see, that's it. I mean, they're getting, they're taking cloves, and because they haven't had a chance to become whole bulbs yet, and... Because a clove is, you know, the closest to just raw garlic, I would think that it would repel them. You know, this is like Superman discovering an antidote to kryptonite. Um, Exactly. So I got two suggestions for you. Um, I don't know who recommended black pepper, but I would think that that would be a four on a scale to 10, whereby if you get um, a lot of hot pepper and run that through a dedicated blender, crush it up with a hammer or something, and put that on the surface of the soil, that'll keep them out because they would, um, they are vulnerable to getting it in their eyes and stuff. So, and they won't be hurt. They're so smart. They won't come back again. Your other alternative is to get a roll of chicken wire and wrap the wire in, in this case, because you can pick these things up and put them right back down again, right? Yeah. I would wrap the whole container in, okay. in chicken wire and put it back down into place, make sure the sides are covered, And then they can't get at it. This is one of the prime remedies for people who have 
cats doing their business and their raised beds as well. Mm. Now, you are going to face a conundrum in the spring. Uh, your garlic will be maturing. Oh, and don't worry about the sprouts. They'll find a way to come up through the uh, holes in the chicken wire. If you see any of them struggling, uh, just go out there uh, with wire cutters and make a little extra room for the sprouts. Okay. That works for spring bulbs, too. They find their way. Uh, But, you know, you're not going to get those planters back until July. Yes. So I now you're this is a balcony with a deck and um, flooring going up to what? Uh, it's just right up to uh, the, the the balcony itself is is just like flush along the the, the second floor of the uh, the building. It's a second right. floor apartment. But if you were to stand at your part, or or maybe it's all your part and look back towards uh, where the house, the apartment begins. What do you got there? Right. You, got, you got a blank wall, you got sliding glass doors. Uh, the the planers are right in front of uh, my the door that goes into my kitchen, but then everything around that is just a brick wall. Oh, oh brick wall. Okay, yeah. so although garlic can survive outdoors in containers, you have a double whammy because not only are your garlic not in the ground, um, but they're high up off the ground. So what I would do, and you can do this all at once, the chicken wire and the moving, cover them with chicken wire and line them up against that brick wall where heat will radiate back to them at night. Uh, and I think okay. I think you'll get a better crop, and then you can expand your enterprise by getting um, new containers and planting your herbs and stuff in them in the spring. And if they are really wobbly, I would recommend uh, that you just put a couple of screws in the bottom going into the um, into the deck material. And um, and then fill them up with soil and plants. Um, you know, it it and then um, you can, you know, plant some winter crops in there as well. Things like pansies that would survive the winter even at that height off the ground very well. And then you're mm. going to get then you're going to get twice what you planned on. All right, that all sounds like a bunch of really good ideas. Uh, score one for the for the humans. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we needed it. All right, uh, thanks for calling, Jake, and uh, good luck to you, sir. Of course, thanks a lot, Mike. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye. All right, as promised, it is time for the question of the week, which we're calling, are you ready? Are you making compost or are you just composting? Now, I always feel bad when a publisher sends me a new book about how to make compost. I start with high hopes, but when I get to topics like grass clippings, sawdust, newspapers, junk mail, and compostable food containers, 
I realize that it's just another book whose information will prove useless at best and plant deadly at worst. By the way, I never interview those authors. I'm not going to beat people down who think they're doing good by repeating outdated or incorrect information from other people's books, internet articles, or extension service bulletins. Instead of me doing that, let us discuss the difference between making compost and composting. Number one, items that quote compost. Lots of materials that are quote recommended for compost pile inclusion will over time break down and decompose. But just because materials like office paper or compostable food containers will break down does not mean that they become compost. Cardboard, junk mail, sawdust, newspapers and such have zero plant feeding potential. Yes, the pile will eventually decrease in size. It may even look like dirt at the end, but it will not magically acquire plant-feeding nutrients that its raw materials never had. You didn't make compost. You made fast food fill. Say that three times real fast, cats and kittens. Number two, items that do make compost. To create compost that will fertilize your plants, prevent disease, and put life back into your soil, you must start with raw ingredients. Things like cardboard, shredded newspaper, junk mail, and the like are no longer raw. They've been heavily processed, and they're not going to add anything other than bleach and toxins to your pile. Shredded fall leaves, on the other hand, are teeming with life carbon, beneficial microbes, and micronutrients that are all primed to create the perfect fertilizer and disease protection for your plants. If you do nothing more than shred up your nutrient-rich fall leaves and put them into a container or enclosure with good airflow, they will eventually break down into good compost for your plants. But if you don't shred them, they'll stick together, resist composting, and get moldy. Important takeaway number one. The smaller the particle size of the original ingredients, the faster the material will become compost. Shredded leaves are the classic example. They are the best source of dry brown carbon-rich material that should make up the bulk of your pile, and shredding them will produce usable compost really fast. Sigh, and yes, and yes, that means you really must shred your fall leaves. Sorry. Important takeaway number two, adding small amounts of, quote, nitrogen-rich wet green material to your dry brown stuff will produce compost much faster and the compost will be of much better quality, especially in its ability to fight or prevent plant disease. The best nitrogen-rich companion for your shredded fall leaves is or are spent coffee grounds, 
which are available in bulk at coffee shops just for the asking. And you're keeping it out of their trash as well. Second best is grass clippings obtained from an untreated lawn when the leaves are coming down in the fall. Now, yes, virtually all, quote, compost guides say to include, quote, grass clippings. But they never explain that clippings from a lawn that was exposed to persistent systemic herbicides via weed and feed or a commercial lawn service will produce contaminated compost that can be deadly to your plants. Now, if you are certain that your lawn has not been chemically treated, you can use a bagging mower in the fall to collect the perfect mix of grass clippings and leaves that land on the lawn. This combination will make such excellent compost that I beg you not to add anything else. If you have lots of leaves, make another pile with shredded leaves and coffee grounds and a third pile with just shredded leaves and see who wins the race. P.S. Outside of leaf fall time, you should use a mulching mower without a bag to return the micronized clippings to your lawn. These pulverized clippings contain a whopping 10% nitrogen, which is the perfect food for your lawn. Remove the clippings and you starve your lawn. Plus, if you do have treated grass, this is the only way to use those clippings safely. Do not put them out for recycling. Important takeaway number three. The more you mix the ingredients in the beginning, the faster that pile will become compost. But only if you don't keep adding stuff to it. The ideal way to compost is using the batch system. You fill a bin, whether homemade or purchased, to the top, and then leave it alone. If you keep adding new things, it'll never be finished. Resist the temptation to seize defeat from the jaws of victory when that pile shrinks down in size. Make a second pile instead. Kitchen scraps. Sorry, but outside of coffee grounds and finely ground eggshells, most kitchen waste is very low in nutrients. Yeah, I know that doing good with kitchen scraps are probably why you decided to start composting. But the unfortunate truth is that it's the shredded fall leaves or ground-up corn stalks or cattails or other live brown matter that actually becomes the compost. If you have a critter-proof bin, it's perfectly fine to mix in small amounts of kitchen waste like chopped up broccoli stalks, but no more than around 5 to 10% of the total pile. Same with coffee grounds. No more than a five-gallon bucket mixed into a large pile of shredded brown material because lots of shredded brown plant material plus a little kitchen waste makes for a perfect pile. Well, that sure was a possibly disconcerting look 
at Compost Ingredients, Good and Bad Now, wasn't it? Luckily, you can read this awesome advice over at your leisure or your leisure somewhere. You're going to find it either at the website of Gurney's, that's G-U-R-N-E-Y-S dot com, or at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page, or both. I don't know. Nobody tells me nothing around here. Oh, and yikes, my producer is threatening to put all my old copies of People in my pile. If I don't get out of this studio, we must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9444 or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please, 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 I'm begging you to include your location. You'll find all of our contact information, plus audio of this show, audio and video of previous shows, and links to our internationally renowned, 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 renowned podcast at our website, YouBetYourGarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a public radio show and podcast produced and delivered to you every week from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when he foolishly went down the stairs to investigate a bunch of strange noises in the basement. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Joni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work and keep up with what's happening with this show at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Jasmine Griffin. Our irreplaceable audio editor is the lovely Jonas Bowen. Zach the Takwisneski and Ducky the Dancing Duck are in the house. So is our beloved and beleaguered CEO, Tim Fallon. I'm your bedraggled host, Mike McGrath, and I'll be recycling all my Christmas and New Year's junk properly until I can see you again next week. Hey, hey, you kids, metal, glass, number one or two coated plastic, and flattened cardboard go into the curbside recycle bin, not the trash can. Wrapping paper gets combined with junk mail, paperboard, old magazines, and office paper and taken to the paper recycler collection bin just down the road. Get it right, people, and don't put any of it in your compost pile.